just found that my desire to be accepted and loved and enjoyed by my family was an obstacle to my obedience to the Word of God. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Today, Nikki, here we are doing our second podcast in our series, The Life After Adventism. Today, we're going to discuss managing the matrix (laughs) or how to navigate interactions with our still Adventist families and friends who don't understand that being born again and leaving our religion gives us a completely new worldview. So many situations emerge when we leave. I think back to all the things that went through my mind. How should we tell our families that we left? What do we do with their anger or their arguments? I mean, it's one thing to have our own anger and arguments and reactions to leaving, but theirs towards us? What should we do when we visit our families and they want us to go to church with them? What about baptisms and funerals in Adventist churches? What if they distance themselves completely from us? What if they decide to do a get-together for Thanksgiving and they resent your turkey being in the oven with their cottage cheese loaf? What about dating an Adventist if you're a Christian? So, Nikki, today we're going to talk about how we've handled things like this as well as conversations we've had with others who have also dealt with things like this. First, though, we want to thank all of you for your emails and for sharing this podcast with your friends. We love hearing your questions and stories. Please contact us at formeradventist at gmail.com and go to proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly proclamation email. You can find links there to our online magazines and articles, as well as to our YouTube channel and this podcast. And please follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love for you to write us a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast, if you love this podcast. And now, Nikki, I have my question for you. Okay. (laughs) As you left Adventism, in what circumstances did you most feel yourself threatened with being sucked back into the Adventist matrix? You know, when we left Adventism, we didn't go back to any kind of church activities or anything like that. We didn't return to the Bible studies we had been involved in. So, our only contact or interaction with Adventism was when we would gather with family. Mm -hmm. That's when I would encounter the disorienting experience of sharing time and space with people who have very different life assumptions. Oh, yeah. I mean, every conversation that, that occurs in a situation like that proceeds from a fundamental assumption about reality. Great point. And so you don't realize how often Adventism is infusing all of the dialogue that goes on around you until you leave and you don't share those assumptions, you don't share that worldview, and you have a very different perspective about normal, common things. Because remember, we've talked on here about how Adventism affects all areas of life. Mm -hmm. How do you share life with someone whose entire life right. you know, is infused with Adventism? I don't know if that made sense, but that was really where I encountered that. What about you? Well, it was 
interesting because it was kind of incremental for me. The first really, really big thing was when we decided to tell Richard's parents. We knew that was going to be a big hurdle. And so we had them over for Sabbath dinner, something we frequently did in those late Adventist days. And I remember Richard telling them that we had left. They had um, kind of two reactions. His mother wept, but then they said, well, we kind of thought that you probably were leaving. Richard's parents found it quite convenient to not overtly, but quite profoundly without words, consider it my fault that we had left. And it was interesting because when Richard and I would talk about that, it was so annoying to us because it was as if they were saying Richard couldn't think for himself. And anybody who knows Richard would know that nobody can just lead him out. (laughs) No, I can't convince Richard he needs to do something just because I want him to. You know, Mm -hmm. he he has to be convinced in his own mind to do something. And quite the opposite was actually true. Richard's conviction about truth was what gave me the courage actually to leave. I don't know if I could have just left on my own if he hadn't been really convicted of the truth of Scripture. So, it was an interesting dynamic. And then his experience even lasted longer in a sort of increasing, ongoing way because he worked for the School of Dentistry at Loma Linda for another seven years after that. Now, they all knew he was no longer Adventist, but he was there declaring the truth of the gospel to people for seven years before he was finally fired for this work. So, it was an interesting matrix, if you want to say that. Every day he would drive down, enter the matrix of Loma Linda, (laughs) work in the school, and then come home, and we would be involved with FAF and Life Assurance Ministries at home. So, it was a real interesting juxtaposition for him. There were a lot of times when I had to ask myself as we were working on Proclamation Magazine or preparing for FAF Bible studies, why are we really doing this? If if these Adventists are sincere and they believe what they believe and they trust the Bible and they love Jesus, why are we doing this? And then I would have to remember, Adventism doesn't teach the same gospel. Yeah. And if they did teach the same gospel, it would really wouldn't be right for us to do this work. Mm -hmm. But because they don't have the same gospel and they don't even know they don't, we have to present the gospel to them. It would be negligent of us not to. Because if you're not believing the proper Jesus who couldn't sin, who couldn't fail, if you aren't trusting Him, you're not believing unto salvation. Right. Saving faith is all about the object of your faith. Not about your sincerity. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you bring up that that you were blamed for the exit. It seems to me, and and honestly, if I think about what I used to think about people who left, so I'll speak for myself, I assumed that they were either being deceived by someone or they were being deceived by their own emotions. So they left because they were angry or someone hurt them or they just didn't want to deal with keeping the law. Mm -hmm. You know, or someone deceived them. It's interesting. Never occurred to me that anyone would leave because of doctrine. That just didn't that didn't make sense until I read Galatians and <laughs> whew, 
that changed everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's interesting to me that even today, within Adventism, Adventists have conducted a number of surveys over the years about people who have left. Mm-hmm. And to be quite honest, most people who leave Adventism do not leave to go into Christianity and an active life in a Christian church. Most just kind of go into nothingness and float. Yeah, well, I will say that I have participated in some of those surveys, and um, you can create surveys to communicate specific information, the way that you ask questions, if it's multiple choice, the options that you give, so you're having to choose what's the closest to the truth. And it was a very skewed survey that I took. Yeah. And I know several other formers who took it because it was shared in some of the groups on Facebook. And the results that came out of that didn't reflect a lot of the reasons that we left. That's right. I participated too. They never even allowed me to say Mm-mm. that we left because of doctrine. No. Mm-mm. What I realize as I look back on it, it's very disorienting to leave Adventism, partly because you figured out that everything you believed was a lie to some extent. The deception was so intense, but also because the people that you loved and cared for and that you interacted with and worked with, they might be very curious about why you left, but when you talk to them about the gospel, they don't actually want to track most of the time. A few may. In fact, I've often told people, you'll have about six months where you can explain to people why you left because they're all very curious. Mm-hmm. After about six months, people st- sort of drop off and stop talking. And it's hard to talk about the gospel. It's hard to talk about doctrinal things with them. It's hard to have to do that so early out. Yeah. You know, when I think about my first six months out of Adventism, there were definite things that that were different from Adventism that I could have sat and talked with them about. But all of the questions that get thrown at you, you know, you're holding things loosely. You're like, well, I haven't really studied that yet. Or you're being honest about what you know and what you don't know. And it can be overwhelming. And you're looking into the eyes of these people you love so much and you're seeing something reflected in their face that you've never encountered before. And that's disorienting. And so I agree, it is a short period of time, but it's also a short period of time with a lot of obstacles. Right. That is such a good point. So Nikki, when you look back on the interactions with the quotes matrix of Adventism in terms of your family, how did you navigate that? Well, at first, very naively, I had attended several non-denominational women's retreats with some of my sisters and my stepmother, and we all loved being a part of that. And Mm -hmm. so, honestly, it didn't even occur to me that anybody would be upset that I would go from Adventism to a non-denominational or Baptist faith. That's interesting. I knew they'd be worried about the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. I knew that. But I was surprised by the reaction and the response. It was defensive. I guess I thought that if they really believed that I was going into apostasy, that they would have tried harder to prevent it. (laughs) Instead, it was kind of like, you do you. Oh, interesting. I know I'm right. You know, no one said those words, but that was the feeling. There were definite changes in the relationships. I would say a lot of covert, and they may not have even been aware of it when they were doing it, but a lot of covert kind of marginalizing, ostracizing, but not in ways you can nail down or address, you know? People know when they're being discussed. 
Yes. They know. Yes. And if you enter a room and the whole room gets quiet and no one can look each other in the eye, (laughs) there's a chance that you were the subject of that conversation. And it was strange to me because I had been very close and, and someone that people would confide in up to that point. But at the same time that this is happening... My affections are changing. Yeah. My uh, convictions are changing. My sense of humor is changing. The things that I enjoy discussing or hearing about or laughing about, they're different. Yeah. And and that's not their fault. That was my fault. And so now all of a sudden, this woman that they had this relationship with where you would you know, maybe have a crass sense of humor or go see movies that right. I was no longer interested in seeing or discussing behavior that I could no longer condone. Yeah. That that changed for, for some of them. I mean, I guess in a way I was separating as well. Yeah. So as I was encountering these changes, these shifts in the relationships, I was very distressed, but I was also at the same time I had shared last week, I was reading through letters of the New Testament, just because I was so excited to learn the truth and to know this faith that I was now a part of, which is so strange because I had always believed I was a Christian. I would encounter these verses as I read that actually instructed me in how to interact with this dynamic. And I didn't figure it out in my first pass through, but there would be times where I would be distressed over dynamics that I had just encountered in this Adventist setting, yeah. and the Lord would bring to mind something I read in the Word. For example, when the conflict was related to theological discussion, mm-hmm. that was more clear to me when I could see, okay, they're pushing back on truth now. Yeah. This is about the gospel. This is about the Lord. And for example, John 15 Mm-hmm. Um, in verses 18 to 21. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Wow. Because of this, the world hates you. And he goes on and says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. Wow. I could see that some of the overt abuse that I encountered, um, my husband's family had a really hard time with us leaving. Mm-hmm. I was kind of blamed in that <laughs> setting. And and some of the things that were stated, like I'm leading my family to hell. Oh um, there were some nasty comments that were made. I could look at that and I could say, okay, the Lord said following him was going to create this kind of thing. This is about the gospel. This is about the Lord. But then when when thinking about how my family would treat me, my immediate family, they were mm-hmm. separating, they were distancing themselves from me. I was feeling that kind of ostracizing. Yeah. Luke chapter 6, where Jesus is giving the Beatitudes. In verse 22, he said, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Now, I don't know that anyone overtly called me evil, right? but because of my faith, there was a withdrawing. Yes. I know that my presence would make them feel judged. That's so interesting. That word there for ostracize is the same word that Paul used when he talked about Peter 
withdrawing from the Gentiles. It wasn't this overt, you know, cutting off like they do in the Jehovah's Witnesses when right. you leave. Just a withdrawing, just a change in that relationship. It begins sort of subtly, and it increases and increases. Yeah, well, and and I have to say, it was yeah. it was also it was mutual, exactly, because it, as this was happening, I was being convicted of what I was to participate in and what I was not to participate in. Yeah, I understand that. Shortly after we left, I remember one night, one Saturday night, when Richard was talking with his parents, his mother asked him, so are you going to kill me now? And she was Mm. actually serious. She was saying exactly what Ellen White said would happen, that in the time of trouble, those who had left the Sabbath would be the worst persecutors of those who kept the Sabbath as the Sunday law came closer and closer. She even said that former Sabbath keepers would be the ones who would really pursue to kill Mm -hmm. the Sabbath keepers. Mm -hmm. And Richard's mom was serious when she asked him that, are you going to kill me now? Well, it hit him a little bit like a sword. You know, it, it went deeply into his heart. And of course, he would never, ever do that. Mm -hmm. But it was a a painful thing to hear one's own mom say. Mm -hmm. And for a few years, when we lived near them, they would come and see us once a week on Saturday night. They stopped seeing us on the Sabbath hours because, you know, we were now not safe. We were secular. We were no longer Adventist. So it would be breaking their idea of Sabbath to have conversations with us during the Sabbath hours because we couldn't have holy conversation with them anymore. It would break their Sabbath. So they began seeing us only after sundown on Sabbath. And for a while, they would come over to our house and we would sit in the evening and, you know, chat. Inevitably, inevitably, the talk would turn to religion and to theology and to doctrine. And even when we tried not to do that, Mm -hmm. they would bring it up. I remember that I would often be working in the kitchen, because we were, we were already doing Sunday lunches for FAF at the time this was going on. And so, I'd be working at the sink, and they'd be sitting at the peninsula in the kitchen chatting, and I'd be sometimes participating and sometimes just listening. And I remember realizing that my mother-in-law was becoming more and more hostile to the gospel, when which Richard would actually bring up biblical passages. And I realized that the more she would argue, the more resistant to Scripture she became, and the more she would actually begin to blaspheme the words of Scripture, Mm -hmm. accusing Richard of it just being his interpretation when he would read words straight out of the Bible and, Mm -hmm. and things like that. So, we had a chat one evening, Richard and I did, and we decided that we would have to tell them we would no longer discuss doctrines of demons in our home. And we did tell them that the next week. And, you know, it was interesting because they never argued with that. <laughs> they didn't say, what doctrines of demons are? This isn't doctrines of demons. No, they knew what we were saying, which I find so interesting. They knew what we meant. So, that stopped those Saturday night arguments. But it was necessary. But it it just created an even more of an artificial awkwardness. It's a good way to describe it. 
Yeah. And, and then that's just one more thing you have to grieve when you leave Adventism, not because these people are gone out of your life, but because everything about your life with them is different now. Exactly. The worldview is different. And you know, I realize that it's a kingdom difference. Mm -hmm. If we are in the domain of darkness when we're born, by nature, dead in sin, children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, and that when we believe in the gospel, the finished work of Jesus, that God transfers us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son, Colossians 1, 13, it's a transfer He does to us. That's like changing countries here on earth. There's a boundary and a border between the domain of darkness and the kingdom of the beloved Son, and there's no middle ground. So, of course, there are these differences and these strange ways of inability to connect because the worldview is suddenly different. So, as I started to understand the true gospel is the only gospel that saves, like really clearly, I was convicted of that. And I saw that Adventism doesn't offer the true gospel. Right. And the logical conclusions of that begin to settle in my mind. It was scary. Because I had family who believed the Adventist teachings about God, about how to get saved, about the investigative judgment, about Sabbath keeping being necessary for salvation. They had all of this stuff in their head that was Mm. cutting them off from the gospel. And here I had the gospel, but they didn't want to hear about it from me. And it was a very stressful thing to know what is my responsibility to them before God. Right. And I, I remember reading out of Corinthians... In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13, I'll just read the passage quickly. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not at all mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the greedy and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is a sexually immoral person or a greedy person or an idolater or is verbally abusive or habitually drunk or a swindler, not even to eat with such a person. For what business of mine is it to judge outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the evil person from among yourselves. And I remember reading that and thinking, okay, so he's saying to separate from... Christians who are engaging in sin, but don't separate from the world. Well, what do I do with my family who claims to be Christian, but who I'm not sure knows the gospel? And and you know what? That's just, that's a cop out. I knew they didn't know the gospel I knew. Right. I knew it. Mm-hmm. And it was terrifying to me to think about not participating in family dynamics. Right. Because I didn't want to cut them off from the gospel. But then I really focused on the so-called brothers part. (laughs) And my family was claiming to carry the name of Christ into the world. Yeah. And they were claiming to be Christian. And they were (laughs) claiming to be more Christian than me. I was told that I worship a different God now. So what was I to do when I, being on the inside of the family, was aware of secrets and behaviors that didn't line up with Scripture? Yeah. What was my job? Because I had the gospel. Right. And... They claimed it. It was hard. It was so hard to put myself under Scripture and to look at what the text was saying and to feel the weight of my responsibility with the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I had to come to understand that God doesn't need me to save anybody. Yeah. 
His Holy Spirit convicts people, and there are others in this world who know the gospel and who can bring the gospel who my family would listen to. Mm-hmm. Because, Better than me. Because they weren't, they weren't going to hear it from me. Yeah. I had to trust and trust my family to God. And then I had to obey the words of Scripture. Now, I know Paul was writing to a church. He was dealing with conflict in a church. Right. And so I don't want to jump to application. But when I thought about that, when I thought about the fact that we're called to separate ourselves and our gospel witness from falsehood. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, what you're saying is interesting because sometimes that realization that the ones we love are claiming Christianity, which we now know to be something we can claim, we know we're born again when we trust Jesus. He gives us that awareness and assurance. He lets us know we're adopted. And when we're around people who don't believe the true gospel, who are hostile to the gospel that we are now telling them, and yet they're claiming to be Christian, and we see behavior that doesn't line up with Christianity, it does actually end up being our responsibility to protect ourselves and our loved ones from the deception. A few months after we left, we still continued to see my in-laws. They didn't cut us off completely. They were hostile. They were angry. They were hurt. They were embarrassed in public. We did continue to see them. But what we started realizing was that there were times when they would stay with our kids. Now, our kids were not that young anymore. They were like preteen and just early teen. But if we would be gone in the evening, they would come over and just hang with our kids while we were gone. And we realized one night when we got back that our kids, who are really not terribly emotion-based, they were more logic-based kids, boys, they would tell us, you know, that grandpa and grandma didn't want to pray with them. They were actually cold at bedtime when the guys went to bed, and they, in the past, had said bedtime prayers with them, but they refused to pray, and they were cold about it. And we realized that they, somehow, without actually saying it to us, had this sense of praying to different gods, and they weren't going to be warm and comforting to our boys at a spiritual level when we were gone, and we realized we couldn't leave them alone with them anymore. Now, not that they would have hurt them physically, but the hurting emotionally when somebody is being punitive because of the gospel is something we actually ended up having to protect our kids from. Mm -hmm. And that was shocking to us. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that Luke 6 verse, blessed are you when people ostracize you because of your faith. Yeah. That was one thing. But it was also interesting to me that the Bible made it really clear to me, too, that we had to stand in truth, that we had to know that the gospel is the gospel, and that no matter how much the people we loved argued with us that we were explaining the gospel wrong or had it wrong, we knew what we knew. We knew what the Bible said, and we understood how Adventism contradicted it. And the fact that our Adventist loved ones would argue with us and tell us we didn't understand Adventism, we had to say, yes, we do. We've been there. And the Bible is clearly saying that's not the gospel. So, one of the other things that we have run into, and I remember we've experienced these conversations with a lot of other former Adventists in our local FAF over the years, one of the big questions starts to be, 
what do you do when the Adventist family visits? Do you go to church with them to keep the family safe, to keep the family happy? Do you go to their baptisms? Do you go to their marriages and their funerals? And I want to say right up front, there's no hard and fast answer to this. Each person really has to prayerfully evaluate each circumstance. I can tell you that for us, we did go to a few Adventist funerals, not for close family members necessarily, but in people that we had known professionally. And we did go to a couple of church services for various reasons early on. But the day came when we realized that the conflict in our own heads was so big because there was something different. Having been born again and knowing what it was to worship with the body of Christ where Christ is honored and the Word is taught, and to go back into an Adventist setting, it was a shock to us to realize there was a palpable difference in the way the service was and the way it felt and the way it focused. It was not about the Lord. It was about something else. And we started realizing that we had to ask ourselves, would we be willing to go back and do temple services if we had been former Mormons just to keep the family happy? Would we go back and do temple work? Would we go to a Buddhist temple if our family had been Buddhist and desperately wanted to have a nice family together? Would we go and worship at a Buddhist temple? Would we go to a kingdom hall if our family had been Jehovah's Witnesses and they were still talking to us after we left? And the answer we came up with was, no, we couldn't do that and worship the true Jesus of Scripture. We would have to say, this is worshiping a false religion. Yeah, I remember... (laughs) The one time that I went back into an Adventist church after leaving Adventism, it was for a Friday night graduation type ceremony thing. It wasn't even a church service, but it was very stressful because there had already been tension in the family. And I remember sitting there and I remember looking at the stained glass up front and looking around at the people and knowing what I know now mm-hmm. about the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the beloved son and knowing the hope that the gospel brings and knowing the fellowship of the saints and then walking back into that it was it was like you said palpable it was overwhelming yeah. and i don't imagine that that would be the case for a Christian who was just going to an Adventist concert or something like that. Right. I, mean, I don't know that they would experience what we do, but that had been my world and my idol. Exactly. Literally my idol. It was what was going to save me from mm-hmm. the lake of fire. Right. Was my remnant Adventism, Sabbath keeping. That was my world. Yeah. And so I was revisiting the idol. That's well put. That's what I realized too. And it, it felt awful. And I remember after going to that, uh, grieving, crying, praying, God, I have these wonderful, beautiful nieces and nephews who are coming to baptism age. They're going to have graduations. What am I supposed to do? I can't go back. I could cry thinking about it again. I can't go back into the Adventist church. I can't go back for anything. It's unbearable. Mm -hmm. How are my relationships going to survive? I didn't know what to do. Yeah. And and then I'd read scripture. 
And I would see all of these commands that may not seem difficult to other Christians, but they were so difficult for me to deal with. What fellowship does light have with darkness? The verse you read last week from 2 Corinthians, it was in chapter 6. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. What partnerships have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Boy, that was driven home. Yeah. What's in common anymore? It's all changed. Right. We are the temple of the living God now. And so we come out of the midst and be and we're separate from the idolatry. That's the command. Yes. I couldn't touch the unclean thing anymore. What happens when your family's on the other side of that? It's devastating. It 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 really does affect relationships. And then there's the text. Jesus came to be a sword, to separate mother and daughter and father and son. And I'm not quoting it, but it's family. The gospel brings division. But he tells us in that Second Corinthians passage, in verse 18, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So I had to take hold of the reality. If scripture is my authority, right? I don't get to look at the consequences of obeying it and choose not to obey. Right. That's, that's no longer an option for me. I have to see what God asks of me, and I have to know that those consequences exist, but that He's taking care of me, that He's adopted me, yeah. and I have to walk in obedience and trust Him when everything falls apart. I need to trust Him with the pieces and know that He came and He died for them too. That's right. If they will believe. And so he also will seek after them, whether I'm present with them or not, whether my witness to them has been removed or not. Right. He He's trustworthy. I can trust him with them. But it was hard. It, it's extremely painful. One of the things that carried me through those times was that text you referred to as well about Jesus saying he came himself to be the sword in the most intimate of relationships. In Matthew 10, 34 to 39, Jesus himself said these words, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. And you know, I think of that sentence, just that sentence, and I'm not done reading everything he said (laughs) yet, but I think of that sentence when we get letters from people telling us we're just angry and bitter and accusing, and if we don't like Adventism, we should just move on and leave them alone. What are we thinking? Jesus didn't talk like this to people. And I want to say he, he did. He clearly said, truth and darkness have no common ground. And he said he was the sword. He goes on, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And I'm thinking, I know that feeling. Mm -hmm. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I never understood what Jesus meant by these words like I did after leaving Adventism and realizing how many relationships my stand for Jesus interrupted. But the thing that has comforted me at the same time this verse has explained it to me 
is what he goes on to say in Matthew 12. I just think this is so amazing. He said, well, he was talking, he was teaching in the temple, and someone came up to him and said, behold, your mother and your brothers, and they're asking to speak to you. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And I realized, Nikki, I remember when I started to understand that. Jesus himself redefined family, and he promised he would give us family and make us his own. When he himself becomes the sword that divides us from the people we have most loved, whose approval we have most craved, and Jesus comes between us, it's especially painful when it comes between us and people we admire that we never felt we quite pleased. And then Jesus comes into our lives, and that relationship seems to have even less chance of ever being what we hoped it would be. And like you said, Nikki, I had to start trusting him with the people in my life because I couldn't make the people I loved see the gospel. God is the one who knows how. And at the same time, he has declared that I'm his sister, I'm his mother, I'm his brother, and he gives us family in him. And here's the thing I had to learn to trust him with. He promised he would give us a hundred times what we lost, but he never said he would give us back exactly the relationships that we lost. We have to trust him with our mothers, our brothers, our mothers-in-law, our children, our fathers, even our husbands and wives sometimes. And God himself gives us himself, and he gives us other people who are his, and we're not left orphans. And I've been really struck by Psalm 68, 5 and 6, where David wrote this about God. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And I really love, that was the ESV, I really love the NASB's rendition of that last verse. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And I've had to realize that the losses I've experienced as a Christian with people in my life who had been dearly loved people who were not Christian, that Jesus himself is the sword that severed us, but it's God who is my father, my provider, my adopter, and he put me in a family where I can't be lonely. It's a family where he is the head and where the people that are the members of the family love him and are in him as well. And it's so interesting that this last sentence is, only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And I realize that the relationships I had as an Adventist with people who were not true believers— before I was a true believer, they were not fully satisfying. They always felt like they needed more. I was always trying to live up to it. I was always trying to meet their needs or keep them happy. 
Only the rebellious live in a parched land. When we're in Christ, He gives us family where we're not always trying to prove ourselves. And I have to be thankful to Him for what He gives us. And the people that He cuts out of our life with Himself as the sword, I have to trust Him with that and know that He's protecting me even there and that He has the power to bring them to Himself and to show me how to love them in the meantime. And that trusting him with our family, that's part of the rest that he offers us. You know, one of the verses that I held on to was in Matthew, in chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, you know, the consequences of following Jesus don't always feel light. They don't. (laughs) Or easy. But he gives us rest and he takes care of us. And I count it my privilege as his adopted daughter Mm -hmm. of the Father to rest and trust him with my family. Not everybody has to do what I felt like I had to do. Not everybody has to put distance between themselves and their family dynamics. But I think a lot of people do, maybe even more than actually want to admit it. I just found that my desire to be accepted and loved and enjoyed by my family was an obstacle to my obedience to the Word of God. Because in order for me to be someone that they enjoyed being around, I had to keep my faith to myself. It was so different from theirs. I had to keep my desires to myself, the ways I was changing. I was so different after I got saved. Yeah. Not because I got good. (laughs) No, because you came alive. But because everything changed. Everything, things that I found funny and enjoyable were so sad to me. Mm-hmm. You know, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 say, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And I really looked at those words. This race was set before me. These struggles were predetermined. God was calling me to run this race and to toss off all of the temptations to compromise for the sake of what my peace, my, my desires, right. to cast that off and to run that race with endurance, and it would be hard. Christ had a race set before him, yeah, and it was the cross. Mm-hmm. And he despised the shame of it, but he continued toward that cross. And we share in his sufferings, and we share in his comfort. And that was the verse that I kept having to go back to while allowing myself to rest in Him and trust Him with my family. Yeah, the pain is very real and in some ways ongoing. Mm -hmm. But the love of Jesus is really worth it all. (laughs) 
one other argument that we hear, both from kind of fresh formers as well as from Adventists as we're leaving, is this argument of the weaker brother. Mm-hmm. So if we're having dinner with our Adventist friends or Adventist family, maybe it's up to us to observe the vegetarianism or not to have meat in our home when they visit mm-hmm. out of respect for the weaker brother. Or maybe we should agree to go to church with them just to show solidarity and love for them when they're visiting or when we visit them and say, you know, we can go to church just to show family loyalty and it's not a big deal because the Sabbath is nothing to us, but we can do this to show loyalty because after all, we don't want to offend the weaker brother. And it was really quite a shock to me when I started understanding that the context of the weaker brother, especially as Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 8 and in Romans 14, the weaker brother is, again, a brother, not someone who has not accepted the true gospel. Our fleshly brothers, our fleshly friends may be very close to us and share our history, but if they have not trusted the true Jesus, they are not brothers in the biblical sense. They are unbelievers. And the texts about food, for example, in 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul says, As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating at an idol's temple, will he be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Now, it's very easy early on to see that passage and to think, oh, I have to not do what I now know I have the freedom to do, eat bacon or not go to church or go to church on Saturday. Um, I have the freedom to eat or not to eat, but I shouldn't make a stumbling block for my weaker brother. No, we have to think of people who are true to their Adventism as unbelievers. Now, I'm not saying no Adventists are trusting Jesus, but I am saying that if they do trust Jesus, the real Jesus, it is in spite of Adventism. And we have to assume that if a person is a loyal, observant Adventist, they need the gospel. We have to assume we have to treat them as an unbeliever. It's not going to help them accept the gospel if we capitulate to their desires that we observe Sabbath with them and refrain from meat in front of them. Now, we might choose to do that just to keep external peace, but we're not offending a weaker brother. 
And I began to realize that the weaker brother in these cases is the brand new Christian who's just come out of Adventism. We're the weaker brothers when we go back to our Adventist family and we've just discovered that Sunday is not the mark of the beast. (laughs) For a very fresh Adventist to go back and observe Sabbath with their Adventist family while they're the weaker brother putting themselves in harm's way. Mm-hmm. Going back and observing Sabbath and the vegetarian cottage cheese loaf meal afterwards, not that you shouldn't, but going back into an Adventist service to keep the family happy is actually going back into what is the equivalent of a pagan temple. Mm-hmm. Because all the cascade of memories, all the cascade of habits, and all of your years in Adventism come rushing back in, and it feels normal. We're the new believers. We're the ones who've just discovered there's life in Christ and that Adventism was a deception. And it's us we have to guard. The weaker brother is us. And if we have children in our homes, we are responsible to take care to not bring them into situations that are dangerous for their own faith. We're responsible to model to them what it is to not compromise. It's a crazy experience realizing that living in that integrity and obeying the word of God creates pain, loss, and problems. Yes. That is so different from what I understood as an Adventist, that if you obey God, you'll be blessed. If you obey God, He's going to bless you financially, Yeah, and you know, you'll know you have the desires of your heart. And it, it was a bit of a prosperity perspective. Yeah. And now, now that I'm in the gospel, I see you line yourself up with the Christ of Scripture, and you obey His Word, and you will gather unto yourself enemies. That's true, and it's biblical. And that's not to sound arrogant or complacent or to uh, dismiss people. It's just a fact. That was something I was accused of. I was accused of being arrogant because I knew I was saved. And I think that there was a sense that because I believed I had the true gospel and Adventism had a different gospel, that I was being arrogant, that I yeah. I thought I was smarter than the Adventists. Well, I certainly did not stumble on the gospel because I was smart, no. I promise. It's a desire for them to know the true gospel and to show them how this false gospel is deceiving it. Going through the 28 fundamental beliefs that we just did mm-hmm. and seeing how intentional it is You know, if our listeners hear passion and concern and sense the urgency in our voices, they've got to know. If you haven't listened to the series, go back and listen, but you've got to know it's because we love these people that we're saying aren't Christian or don't believe the true gospel. We love them and we want them to know the truth. We we don't want to cut them off from the gospel just because we don't want to offend anybody. Exactly. Those are dysfunctional family dynamics. That's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to proclaim Christ. We're trying to tell people... You don't have to keep this list of laws and rules and cultural expectations in order to possibly maybe get through the last day persecution. That stuff is all a deception. That's right. You're living your life behind bars that aren't even really there. God's word says that Christ came to die so that you can be free and you can know that you're saved. That's not a hard message. That's good news. And we want them to hear it. 
And even those Adventists, like there are so many progressive Adventists in the area where we live, Nikki, Mm -hmm. who may say, and I've heard people who do say, oh, I don't believe the investigative judgment. I have security. I know the gospel, and I know that I can know I'm saved. Even those Adventists who say that, and yet they stay Adventist, I never hear them actually articulate how they can know they're saved, how they can know they're secure. How do they achieve that that confidence when they're inside of Adventism, still observing Sabbath, still honoring Ellen White as a voice from God when she was needed? When you have the worldview set up by Adventism, Even if you personally say, I'm going to remove one of those fundamental beliefs from my system, you're still inside the system. Mm -hmm. Here's what I've discovered, Nikki, and I know we've talked about this. I know you see it this way, too. When you see the real Jesus, that he was not here as an example, but as a sacrifice and a substitute, that his blood was sufficient to atone for all the sin of the world, that his resurrection is the proof that his blood was sufficient for all of our sin. And when you know that you're born dead in sin, and it's not goodness you need, it's life. When you know that, you can't look back and keep a foot in a camp that is teaching a false gospel and endorse it, even if you've let one of those little pieces of doctrine go. No, that, that's entirely duplicitous. To have this amazing truth and to know God and to be charged with sharing that truth and sharing that God with the world, while at the same time supporting a system that is an obstacle to sharing that truth and revealing that God, that's mental illness. Yes, it is. You cannot do that. It's deception and it's sin. And I know that sounds really bold. I know, and I'm very nervous saying this on the podcast, but it, it's it's where I was convicted and how Me too. I came down. And yeah, it's been hurtful and sad, and there's been grief, and it can get lonely. But God is so faithful, and that is not all it is. It is no. also wonderful to yeah. be able to live freely and move freely within that truth. Even with the loss and even with the altered relationships. And I'm not saying we have to let go of non-Adventist loved ones. Mm -mm. Never. If they distance, that's something we can't control. But here's what I know. When we love the Lord Jesus, when we know Him, when we trust Him, and we thank Him for His provision in our lives, He keeps us. He holds us. He fills us with meaning and peace and joy. And even when we suffer loss, the joy of the Lord is our strength, and it's worth everything we lose because we haven't really lost anything eternal, and He's still dealing with those other people. They may not be lost to us forever. They may not. And we have to trust Him. Mm -hmm. So I just want to encourage anybody listening to this who's facing loss and strained relationships to trust Jesus. Go to your Bible. Begin reading. As Richard said to us before we started this podcast, there is so much hope and 
strength in just sitting and learning to read through a whole book of the Bible at a time. I just want to encourage you to take out your Bibles and read. You can read Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians in just a few minutes, but start reading in context and you will discover you have reality and answers and assurance and direction, even when the world around you seems insecure. God's Word cannot fail because it is given to you by Him. His Spirit is in you, and His Spirit is applying His Word to you. And if you're facing loss, know this. We suffer with Christ as His brothers and as the children of the Father who are adopted, and we share in His inheritance because we suffer with Him and live with Him. And He will not drop you, and He will provide all you need. He will not leave you orphaned. He will not leave you lonely. He has you. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly emails and to get other ministry news. You can like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And join us next week as we continue our series on how to live after Adventism. We'll see you then.